Welcome to Downstage Center, a presentation of XM Satellite Radio and the American Theater Wing. I'm John Von Susten, Program Director of XM28 on Broadway. And I'm Howard Sherman, Executive Director of the American Theater Wing. Let me give you a number of uh, shows. Currently, Bernarda Alba playing in New York, The Wild Party, Marie Christine, See What I Want to See, Hello Again, First Lady Suite, all have one thing in common. Music was written by Michael John LaCiusa, who is our guest today. Michael John, welcome. Thank you for having me. Hi. Hi. John's just read off a list of New York musicals, per se. You also have just uh, had the premiere of a one-act, probably an opera piece, you might call it, uh, that Audrey McDonald's been doing down at Houston Grand Opera. But we say musical, we say opera. What do you call your work? Music theater. Simply enough. I think the venue will often describe it. Uh, we, I call Send uh, Who Are You, I Love You, which is Audra's piece that I've written for her uh, in Houston, an opera simply because it's easier. It's an opera house that we're doing it in. So. But are the labels a challenge for the kind of work that you want to write? Well, I think it depends on what your audience's expectations are. I mean, if you're on Broadway, uh, you're expecting the musical to be something bright, light, fun, fair. Uh, and uh, if you're doing it off Broadway, you know it's it, it can be something different. And so you're dealing with a lot of audience expectations, I believe, when when it comes to titles. I'm not a big titles kind of guy. I mean, labels, whatever. You know, it doesn't it doesn't matter to me as long as it's uh, good dramatic stuff and told through music. I, it's music theater. Well, I, I think you, your use of the word dramatic is, is significant because your shows are not the bright, bouncy, happy, feel good types of musicals. They are serious <laughs> shows with serious subjects that you interpret musically. Hopefully, yes. Hopefully, yeah, that's yeah. the goal. <laughs> yeah. So, how do you come to the, to create these these ideas? Where, where do you get your material from in your mind before you start writing? I tell you, it can be a number of things. I've got a bookshelf at home that's uh, the to do bookshelf, I call it, mm-hmm. and it's like filled with all these books and, and ridiculous ideas for projects. Oh well, and, let's, usually we talk <laughs> about what's already been written, but but what's on the shelf? What I, might I, be I, coming? I, I, that's my private. That's that's <laughs> that's for me, my my eyes only. And uh, uh, so I'm very private about it. If it's not been musicalized. It's like sort of like a, a child you wish into being, you know. Mm-hmm. So I, I like to keep that very private. But I do have that bookshelf at home, and it's and it's uh, I, I occasionally glance at it, and maybe a book that was uh, given to me, or I picked up in a store, or a play, or a movie. It, it's everything. Pieces of art that have inspired me are on this particular bookshelf, and sometimes it takes a while for me to uh, get up the nerve and the and the balls to 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 musicalize something. Wild Party sat on that bookshelf for gosh about four years uh, mm-hmm. after it was given to me as a gift. And uh, and I didn't have anything to say about it. But then four years later, I said, you know what? This interests me. So it's all um, whatever inspires me in that particular moment or if I feel I have something to say about it. Well, with Bernard Alba running right now here in New York, uh, how long did that sit on the shelf? And what, what was the <laughs> impetus to pull it down? Well, my darling mother, I think she handed it to me to read when I was 13. Not, I mean, <laughs> I don't know. When 13. I went, I guess, well, when I read the book, when I read the play, the Lorca play, uh, I went, oh, my gosh, uh, my family here. Whoa, what's going on here? So <laughs> it was a great, great, great read. And uh, I remember reading it when I was 13, and I've always loved the play very, very, very much. And, um, and that wasn't something that was in my mind, actually, to musicalize, although in the back of my mind, I always wanted to do Lorca. Um, Blood Wedding, though, I don't think would, would work. And Yarma's not right. And Bernarda always felt to me like that would probably, if anything, the most um, suitable for musicalization. Lorca, of course, wrote music for a lot of his shows, uh, a lot of his plays, and he wrote his own music for it and uh, enjoyed the use of it. So I felt it was a perfect idea in that sense of 
uh, of musicalizing such a classic play. Were you but, able to listen to his music? Um, he has a wonderful recording on an old classical CD of his uh, uh, performing uh, uh, his own material as well as uh, with Defia, Manuel Defia, uh, who's a great friend of his. Well, the Hasha Bernarda Alba is pretty heavy at any age, certainly at 13, pretty heavy reading, pretty heavy story. I don't know if it's heavy if in, in, in the sense that it's it's um, it goes to places that are very um, uh, uh, uncomfortable, maybe in terms of uh, emotions, uh, family relationships, uh, 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 politics, which is the same thing as emotion. So, in other words, it's not um, you know it isn't light fair if that's what you're saying dark I don't know what that means it's sad I, I, it has a very sad ending of course it does but uh, a, a very poignant one too and there's a lot of great humor in it though and, and we discovered it as we were working on the show how fun uh, some of these lines were and this, some of these characters were just really very a lot of fun well when I was 13 I was probably reading the Hardy Boys so <laughs> <laughs> a little bit different uh, level there uh, and she also handed <laughs> to me fathers and sons too I don't know what was going on in her mind was that well, just to read or were these because to I read, read that uh, when you were starting to write musicals, one of your early works was the Patty Hearst story. I, what what well, era was oh, that? I, that was just that was for the neighborhood kids. I would always like put my brothers in the neighborhood kids in shows and uh, you know make them do things. And I mean that was sort of like a version of Wizard of Oz with machine guns. And you know wasn't the most original thing, but. <laughs> Well, you read Bernarda Alba when you were 13. It's a decade or two later now. You're all grown up. Has <laughs> <We> that <think. laughs> kind of been, been in your mind all along? Is this just something that you revisited recently? Well, it was, I mean, it, it was something that Grazia was interested in doing. Andre Bishop, uh, the artistic director of Lincoln Center Theater, had been interested in doing a version of Bernarda Alba at Lincoln Center for a while. Uh, Grazia resisted because uh, one of the problems with... Um, uh, a, a, a foreign language play like Lorca, who is a, a great poet, one of the great poets, is translation, and finding a great translation is very, very difficult to do. And um, and yet, at this, and, and when you do it in English uh, as a play, sometimes it doesn't resonate in the way that it should. However, um, we talked about it, Grazi, and, um, and 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 the idea of music, sort of maybe helping that poetry come to life. In other words, the music uh, filling that role of what you find in the, the musicality of the lang the original language, we we hope that that would be uh, a way into the piece that would do, that would make it be able to be done well in English. Well, Graciela Danielle, to whom we're referring, was here a couple of weeks ago. She, of course, is the director yes. and choreographer of yes. Bernarda Alba. She said because she grew up in Argentina that she could identify with it a lot. That she a lot of her relatives were reflected. She could see her relatives in this. I, I tell you, whether you're Latin or Italian, as myself, or 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 any uh, ethnic background, I think you can identify with this play because it speaks to very honest truths about family, very honest truths about human relationships with people, and also too um, in the political climate that we're in right now. I think think the play is more relevant than it has ever been before in an American sense. Well, you keep, you've mentioned politics now twice, and, and Grazi said the same thing. Now, certainly Lorca, as a figure in Spain at that time, was hugely political. What do you, what do you see as, as the, the political parallels in this play to, to today? I, I believe Lorca, Lorca never saw the play done. In fact, uh, for, for the most most uh, uh, critics consider the play unfinished. Uh, those historians uh, consider the play unfinished. He never saw the play in his lifetime, and it really wasn't produced until about 25 years after his death. It was one of the last plays that he wrote, and I think he 
foresaw what would happen to him under this uh, uh, the the onslaught of uh, fascism in his country, and I think that he was and he was very outspoken and in his country. He was also homosexual, and um, which was very dangerous at the time, and uh, which very ironically on the first day of rehearsals, Spain became the first European country to legalize gay marriage, which I thought was a very fascinating, very ironic, um, quite beautiful gesture uh, in a country that so. Uh, firmly repressed it uh, through the Catholic Church as well as through um, fascist government, um, the idea of homosexuality and the, and, and the lifestyle of homosexuality. So it was very, very interesting that that happened on the first day of rehearsal. Anyway, I regress the, um, the, um, the politics of the piece, the, the idea that uh, if we're not careful and if we try to repress and suppress our human natures, um, we will um, invariably fall. Uh, uh, as a country, as a as a as a people, as a culture, we we have to, um, within reason, allow our human natures to exist and and to be what they are, to be who we want to be, to to do what we choose. And when we have a dictatorship, um, or a, 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 a dictatorship in which controls the press, which controls the media, which controls the arts, which controls what we see and hear and feel and eat and touch, and it becomes a very dangerous proposition for for all of us in in, in our culture. Well, for our listeners who may not be familiar with uh, the story, Bernarda Alba is the central character played in, in your version by uh, uh, Felicia Rashad quite well. Oh, beautifully. And basically, oversimplification, a very strong, domineering mother with five grown daughters, not little children, they grown, are grown daughters. And she keeps mm-hmm. a very tight leash on these, she does. these women. Yes, and she and she uh, and and uh, because she does uh, the the emotions overspill, they turn into animals, and I think that that was one of the most beautiful, uh, horrifying, because uh, things that are horrifying can be very beautiful too. And and when you so when you say dark and depressing, it's like, but it's not depressing. It's not dark. It's it's invigorating in the sense that we can be horrified. And great tragedy, the great tragedies that we're familiar with are cautionary tales. Simply put, uh, they um, we we read the story of Medea, and we don't condone her behavior at all we have a certain we don't have any we should not have any sympathy for Bernarda we should have no sympathy for Medea those these great tragic characters but we have to have empathy because we have to understand that without knowing that these people are human and that and that that people like Bernarda are human there but for the grace of God go we so we have to they're wonderful cautionary tales and that's that's what attracts me to them and there's vitality in the tragedy that make us reconsider our, our lives and our feelings and the way that we behave toward one another well you're sure Bernarda Alba has some degree of dialogue but it's largely sung through M- much much of Very it much. not all and much danced of it. And there's danced, a heavy yes. influ- uh, heavy uh, dance uh, in, in in the piece with fascinating uh, work that Graziella there's there's done. a lot of uh, very sharp rhythm especially the first number a lot of stomping mm, and sharp yes. rhythm flamenco inspired uh, flamenco mm. yeah yeah um what what uh how did you come to write the music the way you did was it based on Spanish influence? Yes, it was doing research on indigenous music of the south of Spain uh-huh. and Andalusia and in uh, and, and, and southern portions of Spain. Now, one thinks Man of La Mancha. When, mm. when you think that, it might be the easiest way to go. But when you really do explore the music, you realize that there's such a North African, uh, Moorish, if you will, uh, the, uh, and um, uh, Arabian influence on all this music. So, because it, it, the, the, Spain was conquered by the the, the, uh, the uh, Moors, and and, uh, and most of the music has this great uh, Arabian influence, North African, Moroccan feel, very exotic, very passionate, very uh, um, moody, and and uh, 
evocative music. And uh, so it was very fascinating. I mean, there, you know, when you hear a goat's bladder pumping away, it's kind of, you know, <laughs> you get thrilled. And although I didn't put a goat's bladder in the show, I have some pretty exotic instrumentations there that Michael Sterabin provided. With Bernard Alba, you made a choice to keep the work that came off your bookshelf in the period, in the style of the original play that it's it's based upon. Earlier this season, we saw See What I Want to See, where you took these Japanese stories, which have been very famously made into the film Rashomon, um, and transformed them into another period, as you had done with Marie Christine. Yes. Um, how do you make the choice of whether to keep the work in its period or when you choose to reset it in another in another time in another place? It's a place. very good question. That's a very good question. I think it it really does depend on the source material. Uh what what the decision is to update uh the Lorca play I thought um it, there are so many things within it that are so set within a particular period. He was very specific, the playwright. And when you go to the Spanish and you read the Spanish, it's very specifically set. There's certain way, certain language things that these people use. A peasantry, uh, these people are like sort of upper class peasants, if you will. And to find, to try to find that kind of. Uh, you know, uh, the equivalent now. It's it's very difficult. Do we have small towns anymore? I mean, where are they? I mean, you could you could you could if you wanted to set Bernarda Alba in the South with a domineering mother and do it. You know, I mean, much of William Faulkner's stories are sort of updating of of classical myths. So you can do it with the great classics. Um, for this particular piece, I felt I was so intrigued by the idea of using flamenco music and Spanish music that I thought, you know, I, I've never worked in that genre before of flamenco, and I was fascinated by the southern Spanish music and the Moroccan thing. I thought, you know what, this is a great place for me to, <clears throat> as a writer, to want to go back to. See, when you put, when you write a show... One thing you have to do is make sure that the world that you're creating, you can keep going back to visit over and over again because you can work on something for about five years, you know, before it sees, uh, before you give birth to it. And you have to make sure that it's a world that is so exciting to go back to that little tiny room and sit in front of the piano and pound away some more. So that that was one of the major reasons why I kept it in the period because I knew I could use music. Then tell period. us about the transformation of See What I Want to See. That was different. I mean, that those short stories are not well known, and when they are, and, and in the case of In a Grove, which is the basis for the remarkable Kurosawa movie uh, Rashomon, uh, that to me was so well known that one could play with that idea an awful lot, uh, and um, and also too it was it is based on a short story, not a well known play, and I feel like there's more. Um, flexibility uh, using going from medium to medium in that regard uh, no one knew the dragon very few people know case at Marito uh, the third story that's involved in the in, in this triptych and uh, so it felt really quite fine now case of Marita is set in its time period of medieval Japan although it has a very modern feel musically to it. And each act mm. began with, with a segment yeah, of that story with a very strong Asian influence in very the staging. Strong. Yes, and Japanese, Japanese uh, uh, instrumentation. Uh, it was very, very, uh, very infused with that. And so uh, it was just sort of an homage to the idea of where the source material came from, uh, the, the culture in which it came from. That's why we, we chose to keep it in the period. What, what is the basic storyline? For uh, Quesa and Marito, for instance, yeah. uh, one, one the, for, uh, it is a beautiful, beautiful story. Um, I uh, found it actually in, when I was in Tokyo. Uh, uh, I was thinking of trying to put together, see, uh, see what I want to see 
is actually two stories, uh, are Shoman and Glory Day. Mm-hmm. One is based on the short story In a Grove, and the second story is based on The Dragon. But I knew I wanted a third piece in there to balance it out somewhere. I just it felt right because I used to go to the Met a lot and sit at the Jap- in the Japanese room there, the, the, that beautiful, beautiful um, area where you can look at these giant screen paintings that go on forever and ever. And I loved how the panels worked. Um, the panels for me were very fascinating because you would see in the first panel, you would see like a lily pad with a frog on it. The second panel would be the birth of a uh, hero, uh, birth of a great samurai. The next panel would be a lily pad with a frog on it and a stork alighting. The third panel would be some great incident from the samurai's heroic epic. The following panel would be the stork, the the lily pad, but the frog's gone. And then the final would be like the death of the samurai. And then the final panel would be just the lily pad. Everybody's gone, too. So in other words, it's like a strange way of putting together a story. Red, actually, not Mm -hmm. left to right, but from right to left. And I thought this would be very fascinating architecturally to put together a piece like this, um, as one would do one of these classic uh, Japanese screen paintings. So I was looking for a piece that would go along with In a Grove and the Dragon, and I found Kesa Morita. Kesa Morita is um, two people, two lovers who are having an illicit love affair. Um, the, the young woman, Kesa, the young wife, has decided that it's, it's, um, her husband knows the secret now, and so she will kill her lover because the love is so intense, it is making her feel uh, inhuman. And she must let go, she wants to feel human again. You know, it's, it, it, we, we toy with the idea of God and the peace and um, uh, what, it, what it feels like to be God detached, watching everything so that. And one of the other beauty parts about screen paintings, Japanese screen paintings, is that you might stand five feet in front of it and you see one panel, but you step ten feet back and you see the five panels. And then you step 20 feet back and you see the, pa- the screen painting in the museum, among other ones. And the further you back you go, the more the sense the artist wants you to have of what it is to be God looking at the universe. And in that sense, death becomes life and truth becomes lie. It all becomes one in the eye of God. And I find that very fascinating concept to play with, and uh, that's what we were trying to do with Kesa Morita. And Kesa, Kesa is, um, has decided that she is going to kill her lover to um, uh, escape this feeling of feeling God-like. And um, uh, I was explaining about the, the, the screen paintings and how one steps back and you begin to see what life is like in the eye of God, or the, what the universe looks like. Truth mm-hmm. becomes lie, death becomes life, uh, etc. And um, in the simple story case of Marita, she has one version of what she's going to do. She's going to kill her lover, and we see that happening where she kills him. And then we see Marita that starts the second act, and he says, I'm going to kill her because I can't stand this feeling of being inhuman anymore. And we see him kill her, strangle her. So you don't, one never knows what it happened in the story, you know, or what will happen. It's a marvelous, marvelous, almost, almost O. Henry esque um, uh, type of storytelling. And I, I wonder where who came first, O. Henry or Okutagawa, because when you read a lot of Okutagawa, it's very strange. It's same period too, nineteen twenties or so. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I'm sure he was probably influenced by reading some of O. Henry's work because it's just this this wonderful twist. The thing I loved about Okutagawa's work, though, and uh, what inspired me to write "See What I Want to See," was I felt it was so prescient for um, when he was writing in the twenties and Japan was going through a great, great social social chains up, upheaval like crazy cultural um, disfiguration I mean it was, it was amazing what he was writing in and he wrote about malaise this, this strange malaise of what, what, what it feels like to lose our traditions and yet want to move forward 
And I think we're going through that right now in our own country. We don't want to lose what we find so special about our country. Yet at the same time, we know we have to move forward. And it's, and then you have things like wars and stuff that just keep pulling you into a morass of going, this is not what we want to be. This is not. We all know it. And yet we're so fearful right now of wanting to, to not have it. You know, we don't know what we don't want to let go of what it is we do have. And, it's, and, and he wrote about that malaise, and that attracted me very much to his work. Well, in another one of the stories that are part of See What I Want to See, the dragon, which became yes, Glory, Glory Day. Day, you dealt with a much more contemporary style of music, more contemporary story, and again, very much issues of faith and people's versions of what might be to come. How did you change the dragon into that story. Well, I love the story of the dragon so much about this priest who uh, does decide to play a practical joke and creates this lie that becomes this, this universal truth. This becomes a truth for everybody. And then when the incident, uh, simply put, the story is uh, the priest creates a lie that God will appear in Central Park on a certain day. And as a joke, and he wants, you know, just to fool around because he's lost his own faith and he's you know wants to see fool people feel fooled by it all and people do get fooled by it all and but the more hundreds of thousands of people are attracted to this and desperately need it fate this this idea of a miracle is um uh he becomes it becomes really goes out of control for him and um and of course when the when on the date the appointed date where god is supposed to appear um there's a huge storm blows up and uh he's the only one to witness it and when he tries to explain to people um did you see it did you see the miracle and they all say no we didn't see anything and of course his aunt is his uh, aunt monica um who is an atheist and diehard communist even has a change of faith too about it because she 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 admits in, in in a song called "I There Will Be a Miracle" that um, she she always knew something inside of her was saying maybe maybe and I think that that's something that keeps us all good in a lot of respects and and she she sort of says that in the script you know she says but I love you um, it has to come from someplace greater than um, myself, you know, and I do believe that that's what keeps us good is this, just, this something in the back of our laws, even we be, we don't believe in God or whatever, we do believe that there's something more to us, and it was great to explore that. Now, on the other hand, you could take a look at the piece and say it's like, um, it's a very personal piece for me, because um, it is about um, what it's like to write musicals for myself in New York and you kind of you put your musical out there and you go um, okay here's my, my do you like it I, I, it's, it's really here's my pretty little show what do you think and everybody goes what show it's not pretty what are you talking about and you go, no, 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 really, really, see, look, look, look. And they go, I didn't see anything. What are we talking about? So it's, it is sort of a what it's like to, how do, you, how do you keep having faith in yourself to keep going? So it's a very personal one for me. Especially for when me, you're so. putting yourself out in front of the public. Every time, yeah, exactly. It's a, it's a dangerous proposition to do that. As a, as well, a, we've been talking uh, about See What I Want to See. We've been talking about your music. Why not listen to some of your music from that CD? The CD just recently came out on Ghostlight Records. That's correct. Why don't you pick one of the songs from and we'll, we'll play it. Uh, this is Mary Testa uh, singing There Will Be a Miracle. She plays the character of Aunt Monica, the the priest's aunt. As I said, she's a, mm -hmm. a diehard a communist, a diehard atheist. But um, when this idea of a miracle um, comes about, she herself has a change of heart in a very quiet, very quiet way. And I think this song hopefully demonstrates that change. 
from the new CD of See What I Want to See. That's Mary Testa singing the work of Michael John LaCusa, who's sitting with us today. Michael John. Thank you for having me. You are very well known for the Wild Party. There's two different Wild Parties. Yes, yours Andrew is, Lippa. Yours is the version. Broadway, the Wild Party. We did ours on Broadway, yes, right, premiered right. on Broadway. And right. it just uh, uh, was out in L.A., and it won all the top awards out there just the other night there, which was so delighted to uh, see that happen for the piece. It was gorgeous re- revival out there. It was really lovely. But as an artist, when these two productions were sort of barreling along at the same time, what was your take on that? Were you, were you, were you, was it a big game of chicken waiting to see if somebody else would blink and nobody blinked? I don't know if that's that's the case, although I think you might have something there uh, in that. I, I think when you when you go about writing a show, the chances of it getting up are nil. I mean, there, it's just let's you know a thousand to one shot that your show is going to get up, and so you never know. You keep working, and if it's something that you believe in, and other people get on board and believe in, you you have to keep going. You have to keep going with it because you believe in it or not. And we felt so strongly about our our work and what we wanted to do with it. We had a cast lined up, and and and, and the money lined up to do it on Broadway. We said, you know, we have to go ahead with this here, because um, uh, one never knows. And I think Andrew would say the same thing too. He's a marvelous composer, writer, uh, Andrew Lippa would say the same thing. I think that you know, you just you keep. You do what you do because you never know what's going to happen the next day. So I think it was it was ironic and I think unfortunate in, in a lot of respects. And again, Andrew might say the same thing too. That um, that uh, I think it, it 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 because of the nature of there being two people were unwilling to accept either one in for its face value. Although it has its fan, both both have their fans, and and and, and uh, so you know that that's the uh, it's ironic. It happened. Um, there were two, you know, volcano movies too. I think that year, so you know, it happened. There's so. the comparison. I think Dante's Peak and Volcano compared to the two wild <laughs> parties. Was, I'm sure know, that was the role model. But, but let me ask: now that it has gotten free of the Lippa Lacusa version, you know, simultaneously, in other productions, have do you think the work has been? seen more just for itself? Oh, yes. I mean, that was very apparent from the L.A. production and the, re- and the acclaim that it achieved uh, this past uh, month. Or it just came down, I think, last month. And it had played there for a really great extended run. It was really fabulous. Great company of people. So I think people saw the work for what it was and there was nothing in the way of that. And I think that that was where the enjoyment of theater could be. People could be subjective about it and not objective. I think that's one of the problems, though. Um, both uh, critically and uh, even with audiences today is that we've become very objective when we go to the theater and you should not be. How do you um, mean? Explain, explain well, what you uh, that. Well, subjectivity is something that you, you, you want to go into the theater and, and, if, and be subject to what it is you see. You want to go in with an um, open mind and open heart and you don't want to go in and objectify anything. In other words, uh, I, I tell you, the reason I'm on the subjectivity thing is because I had spent two months in, with 22 women in a basement of Lincoln Center Theater working on Bernard Alba. So I learned quite a th- few things that I, I thought, oh, I knew women enough, but you never know enough about women. And <laughs> one of the things that I did learn from working with these women was what it was like to be objectified. And, and I feel that very often people will objectify the work before they even go in and say, oh, it's going to be atonal because it's by him, and but without even opening up their ears and eyes and hearts to the work. Now, that might sound like a criticism of critics or whatever, but it's 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 the truth. There's there's nothing a good critic should be have honed subjectivity. In other words, uh, developed over the years, going to see ballet, going to the great art, going going watching, you know, reading, learning, and then being oneself when one goes in, not some objective eye looking at things and you know telling us what it needs. In TV, 
is a very objective experience. We can be very objective watching TV, and I think that uh, not to criticize TV because I love I love watching you know some of the shows on on, but when it's selective, like like your your station here, when when you can choose, it's very healthy. It's extremely healthy. Uh, when you can't choose, you know, then then you become very objective about what it is you're you're, you're watching, and um, and it's created an audience of very objective viewers, which is not what theater should be about. In writing, back to, back to the women of Bernarda Alba, writing a piece all for women's voices. Now, you've certainly written the one-person piece for, for Audra, which is and a Marie single Christine, which had ma- many women in it. But, yeah. but an all-female cast exclusively. Yes. Was that... It's obviously the source material is the same situation, but what was that like for you as a composer, since obviously you could only strike certain vocal notes... Well, you'd be surprised, my friend. Uh, the, I've got some baritones in that company too, and I use full, I use them full throttle if I can. You know, I've got, uh, you know, the woman's voice is a very malleable uh, uh, instrument. It's uh, the human voice is a malleable instrument, whether whatever sex it is. Um, you can, it's a, it's a remarkable instrument, and uh, women are, you know, can sing all over the place. There, they can belt, they can chirp, they can, you know, belch, they can do anything you want them to do vocally, if if you can find the right uh, way of. Uh, using that instrument. And are there voices that you like to write for? Again, I keep mentioning Audra, but certainly in your shows, we've seen Mark Kudish in several different productions of your yes. shows. We've seen Mary, Mary Testa. Testa yeah. Are these voices that you begin to write for? I absolutely have them in my head. They are, in, they are lodged in my heart like a bullet. Uh, people like Mary Testa, Audra, um, Judy Blazer, who's in Bernarda Alba, Sandra Santiago, who's in Bernarda Alba, uh, Mark Kudish. Um, these are people that came into my life, and, and uh, they lodged themselves literally like a bullet, and they, they're always in my head when I sit down at the piano to write. And um, it's, you know, it, 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 you hear them singing the stuff. Now, whether or not they wind up playing the role eventually, um, it's knowing that they're there with me in that little room where I write. Um, it's like it's it's a it's a good thing to have them in my head, and I love them very much. And they they also give a lot back to as actors. He, um, you know, I, I I love the ones who I I feel very strongly that it's not up to me to challenge them. You know, I it's, it's up for that up to them to say I would like a challenge. And when that person steps up to the plate, that actor and says, "Give me something I can really bite into." Um, it's just it's it's like heaven. It's like Nirvana on earth. Well, you, you talk about sitting in your little room with your piano. <laughs> My little music room. And you're, you're hearing uh, the voices of these women. You're hearing the different instrumentation. How do you actually hear that? In other words, in your head, it has to eventually get translated into Mary Tester's voice, Judy Blazer's voice, Felicia Rashad, and then the various instruments. Um, when, when that's going on in your mind, are you literally hearing those, those sounds? Yes. And you're playing it on the piano, but now you're picturing some weird Moroccan instrument? Well, I have to because you have to hear me sing. It's just the most horrific thing on the planet. You know, (laughs) it's just I have the worst human voice ever. Everybody goes, why don't you sing your songs? I'm like, why would you want me to sing? So I have to have their voices in my Uh head. Otherwise, Uh I would throw the whole thing out. As someone who writes book, music, and lyrics, or as we've seen it credited sometimes, simply words and music... You are your own collaborator in the creation of the piece. When those other voices literally come into play, the actors and certainly directors, you've got a long association with Graciela Danielle. Oh, yes. Does that create a different... I would imagine it's a different dynamic than for a composer who works with a lyricist who works with a book writer. 
when did these people enter your process and how do they affect your process? Well, you know, I, 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 I love collaboration. I mean, it's just you can't do a show it's, it, without the process of collaboration, having healthy collaborations. Um, I began as a composer and uh, actually did the BMI workshop and worked with lyricists there. What I found was that uh, writing my lyrics, my own lyric, um, was a faster process for me and sometimes the lyrics would come into my head faster than waiting for um, the, a partner to come up with them and uh, it's just it was a speed thing mostly for myself because I wanted to get the thing done and over with and move on you know uh, for just practical reasons um, but I found myself I, I, I also loved writing I loved writing too uh, and, and uh, I, I wanted to become a really really good playwright so I, I've been experimenting with the libretti and and um, and uh, Exploring what I can do with it architecturally, how to how to make a good libretto is like a major goal right now, and um, and to keep keep aiming for that something that synthesizes it all. And uh, I mean, that sounds like I take myself too seriously. I'm not taking it too seriously. It's just you know, it's fun, and it's fun to really uh, challenge myself in that regards. I would love love to work with book writers. It makes the job so much easier. I mean, it makes and I tell you, I love dead ones, and I love working with the dead. Uh, they're, they're they're actually really great collaborators. They don't argue with no, you. No, there's no <laughs> argument. No. But when, when say, Grazi takes your work, at what point do you do you alter your work a lot, or are you someone who's created it and want to see it staged? Well, Grazi is a, a is is a great uh, a, a collaborator and a great friend, and and uh, we we have shorthand now. We we talk. What I what I I have a strong dance background too, and I I also believe that libretto can be dance. Uh, you know that. Uh, Dance can form a libretto, you know. For that instance, ballet can be uh, um, the the libretto, if you will. Um, and uh, what I love most most about working with Graciela is that with movement, we can also tell great portions of the story, develop character that way. And I don't even have to, you know, I don't have to write the words. I can write a piece of music that will explain something with movement. And so many of our pieces that we collaborated on, most specifically Hello Again, Benavida Elba, uh, definitely Chronicle of a Death Foretold, these are all really heavy, um, dance-motivated, uh, propelled uh, works and in in the in, in in the Jerome Robbins genre of of, of musicals, um, movement is plays a very very important role in all these shows. You cannot do these shows without movement because it's an interesting choice that with see what I want to see. Your director was Ted Sperling, who is at the top <coughs> level of musical eminent, directors yeah, eminent, here in New York, yeah. not known for staging work. That's right, and. But how wonderful was he for standing in front of an orchestra and in front of a theater, in front of shows for how many years he's been doing it? Who better would know what's right and what's wrong after all those years of doing it? It just seemed a perfect logical choice. We talked about the Wild Party. I'd like to play another song. If we could play one from the Wild Party, yes. why don't you, um, you know, basically recap what the storyline is and then pick up pick a song to set it up as Very simply, Wild Party was a, a poem written by Joseph McClure March back in 1928. It was published, I believe, in The New Yorker, and it was banned in Boston. It was quite scandalous, and then it was lost. No one found it until Art Spiegelman dug it up one day and made this beautiful uh, version of the book, reprinted the book with be his beautiful woodcuts. And um, so it, it picked a lot of people's interest. And the poem is it's a very, it's written in that jazzy slang style that was very popular over the day. P.G. Woodhouse was a better writer, I mean, in, in terms of that thing, or Ogden Nash, uh, that kind of 
swing, um, uh, wonderful jazz poetry that was coming about that was sort of taking pop culture, like the lyrics of Ira Gershwin, and sort of putting them into poetry. And people recognizing that, indeed, lyrics by Ira Gershwin were as good as poetry as is anything we've ever produced as Americans. And that was one of the, the, the things. So Joseph McClure Marsh tried his hand at it, too, as well. So there's real jazziness to it all, real slang to it all. And it's really very simply uh, about a woman, uh, Corrine, in the vaudeville, uh, Queenie, who, uh, with her lover Burrs, uh, was a pretty nasty son of a bitch, um, they throw a party for their friends, and shit hits the fan. Let's pick a song and, and, and play it. Uh, let's do Uptown, okay. and uh, that's uh, featuring uh, the Darmano brothers, a brother act. They call themselves brothers at the time. It's a uh, uh, Nathan Lee Graham and Michael McElroy play the the brothers Darmano. They're supposedly brothers, and they're joined by Mandy Patinkin, who can't seem to um, uh, uh, stand off of any song and manages to work his way into every number. So. <laughs> From the Wild Party, that's Uptown. Michael John, we have <laughs> been, uh, you know, talking about about your work, your your voice, which is really very unique. Now, not, not not your singing voice, which I know you said is unique, <laughs> but your your, your musical <laughs> voice. Scary. <laughs> Both as as a child growing up and later as an adult, what have been your influences, your musical influences? That's a good one. Um, I listen to everything. I mean, I've listened to everything as a child when I was growing up. I grew up in Chautauqua, New York, which is a an oasis of you know culture back up out in the mid, you know, New York State, Rust Belt area there. Uh-huh. So it was great to grow up there and, and access to, uh, you know, Niagara Falls, Toronto, and all that was wonderful. So I listened to classical music an awful lot growing up, but also to all the popular standards of the day. Um, my mother was a big Broadway buff, um, but we also had to play our piano, and we'd play all these songs from the, the teens, 20s, and 30s on the on the player piano, which was great to learn. Um, she was a big sheet, sheet music freak, too, so I'd, I'd uh, learn all the old songs. So I love, I love, um, I love American standards. Um, but I'm also a big fan of, uh, of modern music and uh, classical modern music. And uh, I'm, I actually, I love my Ligeti and I love, you know, you know, Ned Rorum and I, I love all my favorite composers, you know, are, are so when you would, the place. So you would go to the local record store in Chautauqua, New York. Uh, what 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 particular area would you gravitate toward? One classical, classical, usually, music? yeah, yeah, usually the classical bin, yeah, because only because I was very intrigued by learning more about twentieth century music, twenty first century music. Any particular composers? Well, I was I love Stravinsky, and of course, you know, to have, you know, that's sort of the always the foundation for a lot of young writers, I believe, at least my age now, um, to begin with. But also to going further back and learning learning. The scores of Beethoven were very important to me um, orchestrally to study those and learn, you know, what what made an orchestra an orchestra. How about lyricists? You mentioned Ira Gershwin. You mentioned oh gosh, you Noel know, Coward, some of the greats. You know, I don't. There's not some. You know, I was thinking. Someone asked me this question the other day in an interview, and I, I, I really couldn't put a finger on anything that I didn't like. There's really not anything that I I, I don't like. Musically, I will always give something a listen, and I always find something fascinating in whatever it is I listen to. It could be like things that, even like Britney Spears, which people might put down or something like that. I kind of go, you know, there's something. I f- I'll find something interesting in the cultural phenomenon of it, or the beat. Where did that come from? You know, that's that's what I love about listening to music that maybe a lot of people don't like or whatever, or they it's not in their their palate. I, I always go, I always like to pretend where where did they get that from? Where did it trace its roots? How did that song get born? 
Well, as a corollary to what John's been asking, last summer there was certainly a bit of a fuss kicked up by an article you wrote for Opera News in which you spoke about a lot of the things that you felt were problematic with what was going on with particularly the Broadway musical, not musicals overall. I don't want to recapitulate that article. People can find it online. Mm -hmm. But what I wanted to ask you is what is the work that is being done now that you admire and why? Who are those people who, who you most enjoy seeing the work of? Well, I'm I'm really enthralled with um, a, a lot of movie score writing right now. Um, Elliot Goldenthal is just brilliant. He's the uh, he and Julie Taymor are, are a couple. I just think his music is pretty fascinating stuff. I love listening to it. It's really really exciting. I'm really into Steve Reich a lot. I love his work. I'm very intrigued by um, um, some of my peers' work coming up. Uh, Jake Heggie, who I love very very much, and Mark Adamo, who's premiering his new opera Lysistrata at the City City Opera coming up next week. Very excited by that because uh, I love Light in the Piazza score very much by Adam Gettle, my friend, and Ricky Ian Gordon has a new opera coming out called Grapes of Wrath. I love their music. I love their I love their musical expression. I was really moved by um, Janine Tesori's score for um, Grapes of, uh, for Carolina Change, and that was a very, very moving, really uh, very adept way of adapting uh, this, this, this marvelous play by Tony Kushner and you know so this is a lot of beautiful music coming from my peers and 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 it's good feeling you know what I mean it's it's a good feeling of jealousy you know you go oh man they got it wow they did they and and also too just like wow I'm working in a world now where all these people are writing you have to understand too that I also am working right now too and my peers are working in a world where we have Stephen Sondheim still writing and Andrew Lloyd Whipper Lip uh, Weber still sorry I missed that Um, I'm going dry here. Those guys are still writing now. So so we still, although we are losing some of our great ones, uh, losing Cy Coleman was a a a great heartache because that that stuff is boy, that jazz is fabulous, and and also to Fred Ebb, and you know we are losing them now, which is which is a sad thing. But you have to understand, it's been great growing up with these two, you know, modern day masters of music theater. If you want to, if you if you, I could be so bold as to say that. Well, to come full circle from really my opening question, you are one of the composers who is now going to be doing work in a collaboration between the Metropolitan Opera and Lincoln Center Theater. What what direction have you been given? What has been the beginning of that process? Where where do you see that going? Or is it simply an opportunity to do your work? With under under different auspices. Well, uh, it's it's in conjunction with Lincoln Center Theater, where I work, you know, over the, over a number of years. So I feel like it's you know it's home in one respect. I mean, I think it's re- I think it's a remarkable remarkable uh, step forward. It's a, not dissimilar to what I had done with the Chicago with the Lyric Opera of Chicago. I had been a resident composer there uh, uh, back in I think two thousand one or two thousand two somewhere around there, and um, and uh, it was great to have an opera company that was willing to say come come you know I say I, I always say I'm show trash you know I'm don't we, we don't want me in, in the opera you know they don't want me around but they go no no we want show trash we want you and you know because it does it, it re- does revitalize and there are so many things just working on the opera down in Houston was was a wonderful wonderful experience but I think for Houston Grand Opera as well too because um, and they do they're very for, uh, much on the forefront of doing new work and exploring the ideas of of 
of uh, modern musical as well as you know modern opera if you want to label the two um it, it, it there's things to learn from both um of these genres you know there's there's the the, the opera provides us with um classically trained voices and uh and uh, and and a tradition of you know vocal prowess and and music and and uh, et cetera whereas from the theater we get a great acting and uh, and and so there's things that we can learn from both sides so i think it's going to be a marvelous uh, a fusion which is great you know america's a mongrel state we're all a, we're all a blend we well, mentioned before your bookshelf full of books to get future ideas for you mentioned uh, wanting to become a librettist write your own books as well as the music and the lyrics what do you think we're going to be seeing from you in general the next couple of years? In other words, five years from now, we look back at Michael John Lacuse's <laughs> recent work. What will that entail, do you think? Oh, I don't know. Just broad, broad <laughs> brush ideas. Well, Anything that's just burning in you? I've got like five or six new projects out there, yes, that are, that are in, the, in, in the pipeline that I want to get out and worked on and, and develop and make sure that they're in readings. And I will be definitely doing uh, Hotel Salemour out in L.A. coming up uh, at the Blank Theater Company, which is actually my jukebox musical. Can you believe it? So really? There you are. <laughs> Michael John Lacuse, yeah. jukebox yeah, musical? Man, yeah, well, so they're actually uh, <laughs> uh, my um, uh, uh, wonderful friend there, Dan, Daniel Henning, who's the, the artistic director of the Blank Theater in L.A., who did the revival of uh, Wild Party, other production of Wild Party, premiere of Wild Party. I think it's too early for a revival of it. Um, he came up with this concept to put together these songs in, in, in one show, and it's a really brilliant concept, and I'm very excited by it. I'll be a great lineup, a great cast for it, too, which is very Well, exciting. on that note, Michael John Lacchiusa, the Italian pronunciation. Oh, that's the hand gesture. There that's, you that's, go. that's what Lacuse. you prefer. La, there you go. Say that again. Lacchiusa. Lacchiusa. Okay, Michael John, <laughs> thanks so much for being <laughs> with us today. Thank you for having me. Nice meeting you. Thank you. Thanks, Michael John. For the American Theatre Wing, I'm Howard Sherman, reminding our listeners that these programs and all of the educational and media work of the American Theatre Wing is available online, on demand, for free, from our website, www.americantheaterwing.org. And for XM Satellite Radio, I'm John Von Susten. For Downstage Center, that is a wrap, and thank you. <laughs>